You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the Film Podcast, where we're going to be talking to a writer-director based in Los Angeles. She is an up-and-coming filmmaker to watch out for. Her latest film, which is a short film for Give Us Our Trespasses, was developed as part of Netflix's Emerging Filmmakers Initiative. And you can watch that right now. It's on Netflix. Ashley Eakin, welcome to the film podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. And I guess this is so interesting because I haven't spoken to anybody that's been part of the Netflix Emerging Filmmakers Initiative. So why don't we start just right there in terms of how this all came about for Netflix funding this for you to shoot? Yeah, so it was, I think I first heard about it in the spring of 2020. I have a friend who works at Netflix in the post department, and he contacted me and said that Netflix has been talking about how they want to do this emerging filmmaker initiative, and they were looking for filmmakers, and there was some mysterious list that I could be added to and and show them some previous work to see if I could get a meeting with the person who runs the program. And I sent in, you know, a short that I'd done previously that went South by Southwest and won an award and it was getting some traction. So I sent that in and I ended up getting a meeting with the head of the program. And it really was development almost. I mean, we talked, he told me about the program and he said, why don't you come back with three ideas of something that are genre that you could, um, that would be a short and that you would want to make for this program. And so I went back and brainstormed and he said I can bring on a writer if I wanted. And so my husband is also a writer and we collaborated, thought of three different stories to pitch them and Forgive Us Our Trespasses was one of them. We kind of came to this idea because previously we had watched Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life in March and that was kind of stewing in my brain. I was born with a physical disability, a rare bone disease. I was thinking, you know, what was happening to disabled people in in Germany during Hitler's regime? The history horrified me, but it also horrified me that I didn't know about it. And so that was, you know, really intriguing to us. And we wanted to kind of shine a light on this history that isn't widely known in, in the West or not widely talked about, at least. That's kind of how we came to this idea. And I think when we were pitching, they could tell our enthusiasm was most about this project. I met everyone else on the team in, I think it was September. I pitched to kind of the bigger group of Netflix or maybe it was even August. I pitched to the bigger group and they ended up greenlighting the project, which was so exciting. And originally they wanted to shoot in New York because they're US based, but I was in Canada with my husband because he's Canadian just during the pandemic and I convinced them to shoot in Canada, which is really exciting. And we got to work with a lot of amazing Canadians. So that's kind of how, how the short came to be. I'm really curious to know what the other two pitches were, <laughs> given the fact that <laughs> I've seen the, the one that you shot. So what were the other two? Uh, The other two were very different. I mean, they wanted genre. So I did kind of a horror film, 
you know, it features a girl who has a disability that's a surfer and almost like I know what you did last summer, fun kind of thriller film. And then the other was like a ghost story. So very different than Forgive Us Our Trespasses, um, but all kind of in the genre space and all including disabled characters. That was really my biggest passion was to put some of these disabled stories on the map. I'm glad we got to do this one because Netflix, you know, gave us the right resources, which can be difficult when you're making short films. You don't always get those resources. Well, that was my next question is how many days did you have to shoot this? Because once they green light it, they give you a budget. Your producer then, you know, makes the budget mm-hmm. or meets the budgetary requirements, working with you to make sure that your vision is is clear and can be achieved with the budget. So talk that through in terms of how many days that you had once you got the money and everything else that followed after that. Yeah. So I think when they greenlit the idea, we we already wrote the script. My husband and I got very eager and we were like, here's the script. This is what we want to do. And their first thing after they greenlit it was like, all right, we got to cut pages. There's too much. It's too expensive. We can't make this. So that was, you know, kind of a creative challenge of how do we take out some moments in this script and streamline it and save money. Basically, we're trying to save days because it was I think originally it was, you know, over a week or two that we were going to have to be shooting. And we ended up only getting five days, very packed five days. But it was actually good that we shot in five days because at the time, the weather in Canada was so unpredictable. And I kind of feel like we got four seasons and five days of shooting. So there's a lot of VFX in here where there was snow when we shot. And then when we came back, it was all completely melted. So Netflix has an amazing NetFX VFX team. And that I think if we didn't have that, there's some continuity issues you know, a tough five days, but I think it all worked out the way it was supposed to be. Now, you mentioned, I think it's roommates. You you mentioned mm-hmm. something that you pitched to them. That's a different project that is very different than Forgive Us Our Trespasses. So roommates is kind of a fun teen comedy, R-rated, you know, was nice to go and have that after doing Forgive Us Our Trespasses because it is such a heavy topic. You know, the history of disabled people can be really upsetting, and especially being someone who has a disability and would be born. If I was born during this time period, I definitely would have been put into these institutions where they were killing disabled people. So, you know, to make something that is is modern day, fun, college, a little lighter was really nice to have these two different worlds because I I like to live within both spaces of like disabled joy and disabled pain. How much can you tell us a little bit about because you've got it's a bone, a very rare bone disease. How has your medical condition influenced you to pursue stories that advocate more diverse representation for people with disabilities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been one of my big driving forces, especially at this point in my career. About five years ago, I had a lot of shame about my disability. It's very physical. It makes my bones grow differently. And so I'm also right under five foot. And I think growing up this way, I never thought I could even work in Hollywood. It wasn't until I saw someone else who has a disability when I was going to school he came in and did um, a presentation 
And he had a paralyzed arm. And I was like, oh, wow, this person works in Hollywood. And it was for a film class. And I was like, this is really interesting. Maybe I could work in Hollywood because I always had a passion for writing. But I didn't really, you know, ever think about directing because it was usually men and also people who, you know, had a lot of like power and influence. And I was like, would people even listen to me on set? I feel like maybe I even had shame with my disabilities because we didn't see disabled people represented in movies and TVs in a really diverse way. It was usually a very specific way that we saw disabilities represented. And um, the definition was pretty narrow of disabilities as well. So it wasn't until I, I, I worked for a director, John Chu, and he did Crazy Rich Asians, and I was part of that entire film. He started getting letters about how much that film meant to people in the Asian community and how they were finally not a stereotype. They weren't, you know, the sexualized Asian female or the nerdy computer, you know, Asian man that is always in every film. And that was really powerful for them. It made me really look at my own community and go, wow, how have we been represented? I feel like there's not a lot of diversity in the way we're represented. And every villain that we see in almost every film has some type of facial scar or difference or, you know, has some type of disability. And if we do see disability in other ways, it's like pitied or it's like overly inspirational. It just, it never humanized people. And that's what I really want to do with the stuff that I'm making is humanize characters with disabilities so we can realize that, you know, people with disabilities exist in our world and also explore our forgotten history. You know, I've heard some things about this history of Action T4 is kept quiet because then you have to really look at how do we treat people with disabilities today? I'm all about making art that questions things. And let's just go back to that crazy rich Asians because I understand that you spent five months in Malaysia and Singapore working on that. So, I mean, that would have been a bit of a learning curve for you at that level. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I, you know, I just realized I wanted to direct right before I got that job, but I didn't go to film school. I went to journalism school. And so I thought, you know, the best way for me to learn about directing is like working for a director. Prior to that, I already done assisting for about four years for different people. And so I knew the job of being an assistant in Hollywood. Hollywood. And I was like, I'm going to get a job working for a director so I can learn. It took me five months to, I had a lot of, you know, second interviews and then didn't get the job. And then I finally met John and he just has a really great attitude. And, you know, he ended up picking me to be his assistant. And my second interview was reading the book, Crazy Rich Asians and telling him how to make it into a movie, which was really exciting because I was at the very beginning of him even getting that job. So like I got to go through rewriting the script, you know, and, and he's one of those directors that takes you into every meeting and really gives you that 360 view of the business more because like he needs you there to be, you know, up to speed with everything because he gets so busy. It was incredible. And I mean, on set, it was a dream. I got to sit right next to him during every day of shooting. And so I got to see what is it like when he's directing? What is he doing? How does he communicate with the actors? You know, I got to learn things with different people on the crew too, in different positions. And, you know, I'd worked on other film sets before, but not in this capacity and not this access. We're like, because I was his assistant, I could basically do kind of whatever I needed on set. And a lot of, you know, my job while he was shooting actually was like keeping just like the schedule of the day right. And then also, you know, just being there if he needed anything personally. And he also liked me to take a lot of BTS photos. So 
I really was just a sponge on set absorbing everything that was happening. And I mean, it made me more confident, you know, now that I'm directing TV and directing bigger projects, I knew what it was like to be on a really big set, you know, and it made it less intimidating. And I could see myself there because John put me there on that set. So it was uh, really empowering. And and I mean, life-changing, I think, for all of us, everyone who worked on that film, because of the reach it had and because of the exposure for the Asian community and how many projects have been greenlit after that movie is just amazing. I mean, the power of film really shined when I was working on that project and, and really gave me the confidence to actually quit working for John and say, you know, with his blessing, he's like, you got to, if you want to be a director, like you got to go and you got to, you know, go out there and do it because being my assistant, it can only get you so far, you know, and, and he was right. That job really, really changed my life. Well, it certainly sounds like you've been quite busy. In 2021, tell me a little bit about the two episodes you directed for TV for Apple. Yeah, so that one, I can't talk about it publicly yet, but it's very exciting and it has a lead that has a disability, which is something you know you don't really see. When I started this whole journey of really advocating for disabilities four or five years ago, there weren't many shows with people with disabilities as the lead. And this is something that Apple's championing and they wanted to hire a lot of disabled people on the crew. And so I got a shot to actually directed two episodes for them. And then that allowed me to get into the DGA. So I am now part of the Directors Guild, which is super exciting. And, you know, I asked them about disability representation in the guild and like what number of directors that they know of have a disability and They said I'm number seven, but they don't really have a clear way of identifying people with disabilities right now. So, which is interesting. I mean, a lot of people, you know, with invisible disabilities, like, do you have to disclose this information? You know, and it's an interesting time where people are being more open about it. But there's also fear of like your job. And if people knew everything, would they hire you? And, you know, I, I totally understand that as well. I'm wanting to keep that stuff private. Well, you've certainly been busy. I mean, since 2017, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like one thing after another has come your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been a really, you know, ever since I think 2020, when the pandemic happened, I had a film that was made through the AFI Directing Workshop for Women, which was an incredible program. That film single really kind of launched my career after the South by Southwest win. I just started doing all these generals and really telling people what I wanted to do. And really, I think people, that excites people to see something new and different. And I've just been hustling, you know, I've been trying to really do everything I can to launch my career because it's really hard, you know, working for John, even someone who is so established, like it's hard. It's a really hard career to get going and to sustain and have it keep going. You know, it's easy to get one project, but to keep the ball rolling and keep getting hired and keep going, you really have to push in those first couple years. So I've been trying really hard and, and, you know, it's exciting that there's some things I've directed, you know, for TV that'll probably come out this year. And yeah, it's, it's been a really exciting season. You know, the great thing is people listening to the podcast can right now go to Netflix and look up for Give Us Our Trespasses, sit and watch it and then understand the whole nature of this conversation, because that's the film that we're kind of talking about. 
We're going to talk to your cinematographer very shortly, Michael Galbraith, who I think just did a fantastic job with the cinematography. But, of course, you're leading the charge. Just talk that through in terms of the production value with this because there's a lot going on in a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, the film looks incredible and Michael did amazing work. And when I presented this project to the group and I talked about camera and lenses and lighting, I I brought up this film called Never Look Away, which is uh, Caleb Deschanel is the cinematographer on that. I was super inspired by the look and even up to like the cameras and the lenses they were using. When our producer in Toronto, Aaron Burnett, brought Michael's name to me. Um, When Michael and I met, I actually learned that he worked for Caleb and was his gaffer, which was a wild coincidence and amazing. And Michael also has a son that has a disability. And so that was really, that connection there was really powerful to have someone who also understood what it's like to love someone who has a disability and what this story means and the power of it. Those two things, you know, and, and and we talked a lot about different references. I love The Tree of Life and Emmanuel Lubetsky's film, and Michael watched that. We did a lot of scouting. We really worked together and collaborated to make this film what it is. And he had some really amazing ideas that I didn't even think of sometimes. And he was like that amazing bridge shot, you know, with the crane coming around, and then he's under the bridge, I knew we wanted to do that. I didn't think about using a crane and Michael working on bigger budget stuff. You know, it's like we have access to these things that we can use to achieve that. So he had that amazing idea and it turned out so well. I love the the neighbor talking to the Germans with the tank out the window. I mean, it just says everything, doesn't it? And where did you get the tank from? The amazing thing is our producer, Aaron Barnett, found it at a museum in Canada. And the tank was actually never scripted. So it's authentic German tank. And he texted me and was like, what do you think about if I could get you a tank? And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) He's like, authentic German tank. And I was like, let's do it if we could afford it, you know, and and Netflix gave us resources that were uh, nothing I've ever directed before. One of the things I want to ask you is about the rhythm, because that stands out to me quite a bit. The the rhythm of the way the arc of the rhythm plays out. And we start off in the classroom and then it builds from there. How did you work through that rhythm? Yeah, I mean, we really wanted the piece to have attention from the beginning. And I think I really attribute a lot of this to our composer. Alex Weston is amazing. I found his music and I actually blind emailed him just a random email. I was like, I love your work. I'm making this short. I have no idea if you'd be interested in doing it. And he responded and was, I was so shocked that he was like, I'm actually interested. Like, what is it about? Send me a script. And so I sent him materials and his work was really in my mind while we were also doing the edit and um, using a lot of his temp music even before he did, you know, before he did our composition for the film. And that was kind of drove a lot of our pace. And we always knew that it was like very fragile in those first kind of acts. And then by the time he busts out that door, when the Nazis come, it's it's a race all the way until the end. And so we really wanted um, almost to feel like you're like having to tiptoe through the beginning of it and then you're off to the races. So that was the intention when we were creating this. 
And Ashley, you know, some of the storytelling, it's very simple. Like in the classroom, we have the, I think it's the pencil sharpener, which zeroes in on the the arm. That's a really nice little way of getting into that. Very simple, but very effective. Yeah, yeah. We definitely didn't want to force anything. And we wanted just to show Peter existing in this classroom. You know, I mean, if those kids have seen it before, then it's not going to be a big issue, you know, and that's something with me growing up with a disability, you know, the people who are always around me are always staring at it or looking at it or think it's strange, you know, and so the only thing that was making his arm strange is the rhetoric that's being taught. So we really wanted to lean on that of, you know, this isn't something out of the ordinary, it's more the rhetoric that is making it out of the ordinary and and wrong almost, that it's having some type of disability is a burden. And Ashley, let's bring in your cinematographer who worked on your short for Give Us Our Trespasses, who is Michael Galbraith. And Michael is your cinematographer. Hi there, Michael. Uh, Great to have you on the film podcast. Yeah, it's terrific to be here. Thank you very much. I thought first off, what would be a great talking point, instead of diving into the short film straight away, is I don't think I've ever seen a cine mixing up his gaffer business as much as you do. Normally there is a transition point in time when the crossover is made from gaffer to cine, but you, by the look of it, you are swinging back and forth between projects working in those two discipline. So I'm really curious to find out about that. I know our listeners will be fascinated that you are continuing to do that. It's a little bit of a, what I would probably call a bit of a new hybrid that you're comfortable clearly doing. Yeah, it's um, it really comes down to just work opportunities, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, my dad was a gaffer in the film business in Toronto. So I kind of followed along in his footsteps and I became what I think is a fairly successful gaffer in the Toronto film business. Of course, I didn't want to stop there. I had aspirations to shoot. Um, You know, fortunately, I had been able to work with many, many wonderful director of photographies. I was able to, you know, learn a lot coming up along and working with these people. And, you know, I was able to pick out what I thought was really interesting and what works for me and, you know, discard some of the things that maybe weren't working for me because, you know, everybody has a different eye. Everybody approaches things a little bit differently. And fortunately, I was able to work on big budget movies, small budget movies, television movies, television series. So I really got a good, well-rounded education, not only from a lighting perspective, but also budgetary perspective and how to do things in restricted budgets and to be efficient with what you do and still come out with good results and always trying to walk that fine line between creative and production, which is a line you always have to walk. There's no doubt about it. You can't approach anything with a a tunnel vision approach. You have to approach the job uh, with a 360 degree point of view. It's not just all about you. It's, it's, It's about everybody that's on that film set and we each go through our own trials and tribulations. So having said that, um, I would I would work on different shows. I would build up very good trust 
with the director of photographies that I would work with. And then there'd be times when there may be a second unit pop up or additional photography pop up. And rather than bring somebody in who had no idea about how we were doing things or the flow of the show, I was able to, you know, convince the guys and the gals to let me go out there and and do it for them. And they felt very comfortable with me doing it because I was able to maintain the continuity of methods, uh, of look, of everything else like that. And it just started building like that. So I got more op- more and more opportunities to shoot. And then at some point, I decided I would actively pursue you know, full-time shooting opportunities. And believe me, it's a tough transition. People tend to pigeonhole you. It's like, oh, you're a gaffer. You can't be a DP or you know, you're a prop person. You can't move into set decoration. But we all know that's a false narrative. So if you're half intelligent and you pay attention and you're a hard worker, you can do anything you want to do if you put your mind to it. One thing led to another. I got a few breaks along the way and I started shooting. Now, as it turns out, you know, you're not always busy. You're, I, per, I personally love to work. I consider my work as much of a hobby as a job. That's why I love doing it. And I just like to stay busy. So in between director of photography opportunities, if there was a, an interesting show that came up and it was an interesting DP who I would want to work with, then I would submit my name as the gaffer. And I still had a very good gaffer reputation slash resume. And a lot of times I would be able to work in that job in between shooting jobs. Now, I can tell you for the last couple of years, I've been primarily just shooting because I've been lucky enough to stay busy, built up a good reputation, built up a good amount of work. So I've been able to more or less just stick to the, to the director of photography job. But for me, I never say never. And if it's an opportunity to work with somebody who I really want to work with and it fits in, the biggest thing is it needs to fit into my time schedule. I don't want to ever leave a job early. I want to complete everything I start. And I want to basically be able to also maintain my shooting opportunities. So if it's a time frame that I think can work for me and I can make it work, I have no problem going back to the gaffing thing. As long as it's with people I want to work with. I'm at the stage of my life where I want to choose who I want to work with. I, I don't need to work for the money necessarily, but I, as I mentioned, I love the job. And if it's the right people involved, that's just as important to me as the money aspect. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about being pigeonholed from a gaffer to a DP because, you know, we've got so many people now because of film schools, they are not doing the gaffing and they're going straight into cinematography. So (laughs) for me, if I have the option, I'm always going to lean into a gaffer who has transitioned into a cine. Yeah. I, and, you know, I, I believe that to be the case for sure. I think it's a good move to do that. As an example, when I was gaffing, and I'm sure you remember the days when we actually shot on motion picture film, but um, uh, when I was gaffing, I would make a point to go to the dailies every night. They were projected dailies in a, in a cinema, of course, a, a theater, a proper lab. And I would watch those dailies. And I would learn from that, that on this particular film stock, I know what I had behind that window. I had as a, for instance, an 18K Fresnel, a big light. It had diffusion on it. It had color. I know what the ASA we were working with, the camera speed, the film emulsion, I knew what we were working with. So I could see the results of what that light was doing at our particular F-stop. And I would just put that in my memory bank. Ah, okay, that's what that 18K does in this situation. Ah, that's what this light does in this particular situation. And I saw the results of what I was doing. And traditionally, there's two ways to come up as a cinematographer. You can come up through the camera department 
or you could come up through the lighting end like I did. Now, if you come up through the electrical gaffing end, you have to pay attention to the camera. I know every single light and every single diffusion and color and height and angle and distance from anything that I've ever set on every movie set. Camera person doesn't know that. They don't get a chance to go behind those sets and see what's lighting up those windows. They don't get a chance to see what's on the ceiling. They're so busy with the camera. So from my end of it, I had to then really pay attention to camera angles, lenses, depth of field, those particular things that that cinematographer was doing with the camera. That's how I had to learn the camera end of things. Conversely, from a camera position, the camera people don't really get a chance to pay too much attention to the lighting scenario and the methods to do it because the methodology is super important. It's how you can get that lamp in a certain position and the grip work that needs to go around it in a certain time frame. So they needed to pay attention to that and they didn't often get a chance to do that. So you could move up traditionally a second camera assistant, first assistant camera operator, DP. The smartest thing somebody can do coming up from that route is hire themselves a good experience gaffer and key grip because they will keep them out of trouble. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you succinctly explain that just so well. All right, well, let's have a little bit of a, a look at Ashley's short here and how you became involved, because this short packs a punch. And from what I've observed about Ashley, she is a force of nature who packs a punch herself in her filmmaking. Yeah, so basically, the producer of our short, of course, it was for Netflix, and our producer, Aaron Barnett, who was our main producer and producing for the Netflix people, he contacted me about the job. Uh, Aaron had come to see a film that I was uh, timing. I had shot a film called The Silence with uh, Stanley Tucci and Kieran Shipka, and it was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a drama with the creature element into it, and I was just in the middle of doing some DI work on it. And Aaron had contacted me about potentially working on another film. And he was wondering, you know, if he could come and see any, any of the things I, I worked on. I said, well, perfect timing. Why don't you come and sit in with me? I'll screen the movie. We're not finished the DI yet, but I'll screen the movie for you. And you can let me know whether it's half decent or whether I suck. <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, I guess I didn't suck because Aaron called me later and said, look, I, I have this project. I'd want to work with you on it. I want to present you to this director, Ashley Eakin. It's a little short, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he described it to me. And I said, yeah, I, I would love to do it. And uh, at that point, he put me in touch with Ashley. Uh, of course, it's the time of Zoom meetings now, as you know. We had a little uh, Zoom interview over the phone. For better or for worse, I guess Ashley thought she'd take a chance. And it, we just went from there. And that's how I got involved in the film. You know, it's hard to convey to somebody that hasn't seen it just how much is in just a few minutes worth of work. But of course, it's all in the planning and the detail and the way in which all of that comes together with all of the different departments. So just step that through a little bit from your perspective and working with Ashley and the content and how you worked with her to realise her project and how that all came together because it's simple to watch but it's anything but simple to execute yeah well we had basically we had one week to shoot it so we shot the thing in five days 
we had some prep time. I think once I read the script and everything and then continued to talk to Ashley, she had uh, really good, strong visual references that she brought to the table that she wanted to, you know, put into the movie. And she just came in with a great game plan. I mean, you know, she knew what she wanted all the way. She had great ideas. I think I had the easy part. I just had to kind of translate those ideas into what it would take, uh, you know, to turn it into a physical reality. And, you know, along the way, obviously, you know, offer some suggestions, which she was really great about uh, accepting and, you know, just basically being very collaborative. And I think at the end of the day, that's the trick. It, it is a collaboration. And I'm, I'm definitely, I think my role is to support these ideas and make them as good as I can make them within my realm of responsibility and be as efficient as I can, because we only did have the five days. So we didn't want to waste a lot of time. And the biggest thing for us was location scouting. It was really super important to get the right locations for this uh, film. You know, one of the final scenes, the fight around the tree. I mean, Ashley had spotted this this old tree in this field, and and it was just so perfect for what we wanted to do. And so we spent a few days walking around. We put a lot of mileage on ourselves scouting the locations. And once we found the right areas to shoot, it just all came together. And I'll give you a little secret about that whole, you know, the final scenes in the fog and whatnot. Just because of the weather conditions, that was actually natural fog. There's no visual effects in there whatsoever as far as the fog goes. And it was just so perfect for the mood of the film. It's like I couldn't have asked for anything better. Uh, it's a, a depressing subject and it just set such a great tone, all that fog that was in the air. And it was heaven for me. I just couldn't believe that that happened for us. And it was a little rainy and overcast on a lot of the days. And just for a mood setter, it was terrific. And we really played into that mood. And once again, Ashley had some great visual references that we went after. And I think we achieved it. There's a lot of work that went into that film. We used a lot of camera platforms. You know, we had a 30-foot techno crane. We had a commander rig, which is an ATV that you can mount the camera on. We had a drone. We had a jib arm. We went steady cam. We went handheld. But we didn't use those tools because, oh, wouldn't it be cool to use those tools? We use those tools because they were the right things to tell the story. And at the end of the day, it's story, story, story. It's how, how can you best tell that story? And you figure it out. Once you know what the story points are and what you're going for, you figure out how to do it. You talk about all of those toys to play with. You're absolutely right. You never want to be using them for the the sake of using them. Often I will say with these podcasts, what did you shoot it on for all the geeks that, that are out there? But I'm actually really interested to know what you shot it on, what your lens package was, because this is a Netflix initiative. So how big was your crew? Uh, I think the crew was a regular size. You know, we basically had four grips, four electricians, set deck team going behind the scenes, dressing the sets, props people. Uh, it, it was a good size crew. It was it was not a what you typically think of as a short film crew where you had a couple people in each department. It was fairly laid out and it needed to be because there was a lot of logistics that needed to be overcome. And literally just moving from position to position uh, sometimes in those weather conditions could be a battle. We went into it pretty full bore. As you mentioned, it was a Netflix thing. So, you know, we wanted to shoot in 4K. We wanted to keep the resolution up high. So I did use uh, uh, the Alexa Mini LFs and I ended up 
worth using my normal lenses of choice, uh, Leica lenses, because they're fast, they're so good. Uh, a lot of a lot of DPs don't like sharpness. I like to start sharp, and if I want to, I'll degrade later. I don't want to start too soft because you have no place to go later. My lenses of choice are always the Leicas, but of course they couldn't, at that point, uh, they didn't have a set of Leica lenses that would cover the full frame for the uh, Mini LF. I ended up using Zeiss Supremes. Uh, I'm kind of a prime lens guy. I don't really, I'll use zooms when I need to, but uh, in general, I just like the pristine look and the discipline that you need to have with a prime lens. And I just prefer working in primes. And I even do that in episodic. A lot of episodics will use short zooms a lot because, you know, the time element is always there. But for me still, even in episodic, it doesn't take much to change a lens. And I prefer just working with the pristine look of a prime lens. Yeah, it's interesting, like you saying that you had a full-size regular crew. Uh, The reason I asked that question was it looked like a full crew in action. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, definitely there's some behind-the-scenes stuff. You'll remember the Technocrane shot where a young man is running along and he ends up hiding under the bridge. Well, we had to build a lot of camera support there for that Technocrane because it was a tricky shot and the terrain was very rough and... uh, our grips went ahead of time and uh, we were able to break a couple guys off and build that platform. And as far as the lighting goes inside the barn, once again, we had to get the sparks out there to do a little pre-lighting and get some stuff set up so that we could basically march from set to set without too many problems. And, uh, you know, of course, at that time of the year, you also had limited daylight. So we didn't have a lot of hours of daylight and a lot of the stuff did take place in the daytime. So we really wanted to maximize our efficiency that way. And the only way to do that is to throw some people into it so you can stay one step ahead of the game, right? And Michael, just to finish up, you, you of course, shot so many films, features, and this is a short. So what has been surprising about this project for you? Because there must be things that have stood out, given that it is a short, not a feature, and you've got all this body of work behind you. Honestly, when I got into it, I I was hoping that we would not be cheated with personnel. I was hoping that we would not have to compromise uh, Ashley's vision and her ideas. You know, sometimes these little independent shorts just don't have the resources. But to Netflix credit, they all realized what we're trying to do. We're trying to elevate this situation. If we're going to make the effort, don't go into it half-hearted. So my biggest great surprise was how well we were supported by the Netflix people, how well we were supported by our local producer. As you know, there was a few drone shots. Well, the first time we brought out the drone on one of the days, it malfunctioned. So we actually had to bring the drone back and it had to cut in with some work that we had already shot at that tree. Luckily enough, we had the same weather pattern the next day when we brought the drone back and we were able to (laughs) make that work. And that was just great. I didn't have to play around too much with that. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the film podcast, explaining a little bit of that breakdown with your crew, with what you shot it on and the location. And I look forward to following what comes next for you. Great. Very good. Well, thank you very much. And in terms of the editing, like in the edit room, because you had the coverage in the classroom, there were a couple of different ways you could go. You could go on the wide, you could show the Nazi swastika, or you could do the close-up coverage and then reveal it at the end. Was it always that way that you were going to reveal the wide with the Nazi sign? Yeah, I always, you know, I was just actually looking at storyboards. My husband helped me do some of the storyboards. We also worked with an artist too for different scenes, but 
I was looking at the ones from the classroom and it was always supposed to be really tight shots. And then that wide reveals the Nazi symbol in the classroom we're in. Because I love presenting this idea of school and children and things that you think are benign, but then learning that this ideology is really the thing that is the evil and how subtle it can leak into the minds of of children when someone's teaching it. And then you realize, oh, we're in Nazi Germany. That makes sense because what she's teaching is problematic, you know, and I loved that reveal. So like reveal is kind of like you're unpeeling the layers of it all and always had that in mind. It's cool to look back because you kind of forget as you're making it until you look back of, oh, I always envisioned it like that. All right. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on to the film podcast. What is coming up next for you? Because it seems that you're very busy. Everything's sort of opening up. So you must have other things that are on the horizon. Yeah, I do. I have a lot of things that are in the works. I have a TV show that we're working on for FX and that we're just in script development you know, pitching on different projects. I'm co-writing a feature with my husband, actually for Netflix. We're writing a thriller for them and we got that from this film. But it's going to be like a modern day thriller kind of about hacking and deep fakes and including disabled characters. Wow. So the Netflix thriller film, that is definitely something that's that they're green lighting. It's always steps. I mean, we write that we definitely got the green light to write the script, which is great. And then from there, once they read it, uh, they figure out if they want to make it. Oh, it sounds like you're in. It sounds like you're in. Yeah, I mean, you've got the great calling card. They already know you're an emerging filmmaker. They wouldn't give you money to write the script if they weren't serious about doing the film. So, hey, that's really exciting. Keep in touch on that and perhaps we'll get you on and talk about your feature at that point. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.